This is the Mentors for Military podcast. Hi everybody, it's Robert here. In the early hours of Christmas Eve 2007, Royal Marines Commando Mark Ormrod was out on a routine foot patrol in the Helmand province of Afghanistan. He stepped on and triggered an IED. Thanks to the swift action of the men around him and the intervention of medical emergency response team, he was airlifted and they saved his life. In this episode, Mark describes this story in detail as well as the actions that the men around him took and he talks about the relentless effort that he applies each and every day. Also on this episode, hosting with me is Scott Johnson and Scott Kinder. So sit back, relax, and get ready to enjoy another episode of Mentors for Military. Look, man, hey, I've been following uh, everything on Instagram lately, Mark, and it it looks like Matt Weston has hooked you up from Empire Gym as well as uh, Limitless Gym Equipment, looks like. That's it, yeah, well, that that kit arrived this week, uh, and it's getting... Road tested tomorrow morning at about five thirty. <laughs> well, we're keeping you up late then to get road tested at five thirty. Oh yeah, about six hours from now. Well, we're going to do the the whole topic here about resilience and everything. So we're going to have to watch your Instagram account tomorrow to see just how resilient you were in five thirty in the morning. Okay, huh? no problem. One of the things I figured that you know you mentioned that you wanted to talk about is around the health and fitness. And um, what are some of the things that got you into that side of it? Of course, I know that you are in the Royal Marines in a commando. But what were the things that really got you into the health and fitness space? And was it something that you had while you were in the service? I had it before the service. Yeah. Um, if you want to go right back to the beginning, I was a chubby child. So um, I enjoyed a few too many cakes and biscuits when I was younger. And it all started one day at school when another kid made a comment about me, about my body and the way it looked. And I, I never really trained before that. And we had a very, very, very small gym, you know, like the size of a, a broom closet in my school. And I decided to go in there one lunchtime and start training, you know, with no idea what I was doing. So I just kind of made it up as I went. And I, I instantly got addicted. I used to spend four or five lunchtimes a week in that gym uh, from about 12 years old. And then just started to teach myself. But as the years went on, you know, I, I liked the way it made me feel. Um, I liked that I was getting stronger, fitter, and faster, you know, and it, it just gave me something to, to focus on and that we deal with, you know, stress and then, you know, eventually becoming a teenager and all that kind of stuff. So it kind of grew from there. And I think that's what led me into the military, you know, wanting to be physically active and, and test myself. In a, in a physical capacity. So you end up joining the uh, the Royal Marines at, was it 16, like most of the guys we end up talking with, or was it a little bit older for you? I applied at 16, and I uh, got in at 17. Gotcha. training. Okay. Did you go immediately into the commandos, or was it something that you ended up going to first before you applied for the commandos? Nope, straight in. Straight in. Uh, 30 weeks, solid training uh, from day one through to completion. Uh, if you throw in a couple of weeks here and there, leave, it's the best part of a year. Yeah, straight in at 17, fully trained at 18. 
which unit in Royal Marines? So we, we train at a place called Limston, which is about 45 minutes from my house in uh, Devon. And from there, I, well, I bounced around a lot of places, really. I went to a place called Poole in Dorset, and then back to Plymouth, where I lived, to our headquarters. I went to Iraq with those guys when I was 19. Then I stayed around Plymouth. I went to another another camp, which was in a assault craft uh, raiding camp called 539 Assault Squadron. From there, I actually left the military for a little bit after my daughter was born. I retrained as a bodyguard out in South Africa. That didn't work out. So after 12 months as a failed civilian, I rejoined the military, went to a unit about an hour and a half north of where I live, in a place called Taunton. The unit was called 40 Commando. And that's what I deployed to Afghanistan with back in 2007. When did you uh, when did you first deploy in 2007? To Afghanistan? Yes. September 7th. So it was roughly about three months later then that you find yourself on Christmas Eve of 2007. And at that time frame, you're about 24 years old when you were out on patrol then. Correct, yeah. Um, that, that's the day that I was injured, Christmas Eve 2007. And I let you say, just out on a routine foot patrol doing our thing, you know, and I was just the uh, the unfortunate guy that caught it up. Like just about every other unit that was out there doing deployments and tours, you know, foot patrolling was a big part of what it was that we were doing. And we'd done, you know, loads of these things in the, in the three months that we'd been out on the ground, you know, pushing out three, four miles, you know, seven, eight, nine hours at a time, whatever it was, different objectives each time. And... You know, the funny thing about this particular day was that the patrol we were going on was very, very easy. It was more really just to maintain the momentum that we built to show the enemy that we were, you know, out there every other day, dominating the ground and getting boots out there. And the idea really was that we would just leave our camp. Uh, I was working at a place called Ford Operating Base Robinson, and we were tasked with leaving the, uh, the camp from the rear entrance in two sections. Uh, one section was tasked with going north, one was going south. We would only patrol the immediate perimeter of the camp, so push no more than 200, 300 metres from the perimeter. Then both sections would meet at the other side of the camp, at the front entrance. Then we'd secure the location, you know, go through our usual SOPs, close things down, and finish up for the day. And we were due then to be gifted two or three days R&R, you know, Christmas Day being the next day where we could uh, open any mail that we had from home and, and do the best that we could, you know, to relax and, and try and enjoy the Christmas period. Now, f- for me, you know, the time came at the beginning of that patrol when we left. You know, I was in this section that went north, the other guys went south. About five and a half, six hours later, we were then back at the other side of our camp, you know, getting ready to close things down and finish up. And the section that I was in, we were positioned on a, a really high piece of ground. It was an area that we called the North Fort, which we used as a target indicator if we ever came into contact with the enemy. Now, slightly beneath us was Ford Operating Base Robinson. We, we were on a very, very high piece of ground. We could see everything around us for about a mile and a half, two miles. And then way, way, way down beneath us, uh, beneath Ford Operating Base Robinson was the other section that we had previously left with. They were just off the side of the main supply route that ran through the area, a dirt road. So, they, yeah, they were underneath us, uh, you know, some distance beneath us, just off the main of 
um, the side of the main supply route that ran through the region. So because we were so high up, you know, tactically, that was very advantageous for us being able to see all around us and, you know, fighting down a hill is a lot easier than fighting up a hill. So we were tasked with giving them overwatch while they then would peel back into the forward operating base. They'd get behind the perimeter wall. They would then take up some sort of defensive position. They would cover us. We would come off a high feature, go down to where we needed to be, get back into camp and then finish up. You know, so very standard, very basic, very easy. Whilst we were up on the, the top of the North Fort on this high feature, um, everyone in the section started taking up fire positions. I was second in command of the section, so needed to take a position kind of halfway between the sections so I could see pretty much everything that was going on. And I was one of the last people to get into position because I needed to do a couple of checks and, and make sure everything was, was tight and defensive. And then when I when I walked over to my position that I selected and went to get down to my stomach, as my right knee touched the floor, I knelt on and detonated an improvised explosive device. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that I mean <laughs> that had to be a, a pretty terrifying experience. And then of course knowing that you've got your, your buddies around you, as I understand it, the the response that they gave was like immediate and they were there and it was the actually a lot of the intervention of the medical emergency response team that kind of helped in in saving your life and and uh getting you out of there it, it was phenomenal you know we're, we're trained in a situation like that you know your, your instant reaction you know your emotions take over you want to run in and save your friend's life but you can't because there's a the possibility of other devices around which you could set up an injury yourself or someone else so people are pre-assigned tasks which they go through in that kind of situation. So one guy will get on the radio, one guy will create a defensive, um, you know, get everyone in a defensive position in case there's a small arms attack. The guy closest to you will then very slowly and methodically clear a route to you and prod through the ground to feel for any devices, mark a safe path. So when a medic eventually gets there, he or she can run in as fast as they can without worrying about triggering any other devices and then get to treat you. So that's what they did. Everyone kicked straight in to what they were responsible for doing. Um, the guy that cleared the path to me was only about 10 weeks out of training, you know, very wet behind the ears. So all, all credit to that guy for keeping his composure and, and getting to me as quickly as he could, which enabled the medic to get to me as quickly as, as he could. The guys were on the radio within seconds. Nobody let their emotions take over them. You know, everyone remained completely professional, did exactly what they were trained to do, and that's the reason that I'm here now. Mark, what role was you within the team? So as the 2IC, was was you purely in a, a, a command role, or was you um, a medic or, or anything like that within the team? No, just just a grab soldier, uh, you know, like you say, second in command. I, I wasn't medically trained um, to any sort of decent level, just first aid and basics. Yeah. Um. Yeah, so nothing, nothing special. Did you have any team medic guys with you on the ground before the Moor team got up to you? No. Nothing. None. Wow. But we were fortunate because we, we, we were literally, you know, 200 metres from the front entrance of the camp. We were just finishing up. So all the yeah. medics were right inside our camp anyway, you know, and they got to me very, very quickly, which was, you know, 
luck for me. Then, as I understand it, they uh, medevaced you out of there on a Chinook uh, helicopter, and they did some kind of innovative and dangerous procedure that um, also really ha- helped prolong and save your life as well. Can you tell us a little bit about what that procedure was? So, yeah, they got me in the back of the Chinook, and they go through their procedures, you know, testing my vital signs. Uh, I had no pulse. They could not get intravenous lines into me because all of my veins had collapsed because of the blood loss. And when they put an oxygen mask on me, it didn't steam up to show any signs that I was breathing. And so they classed me as dead. Now, fortunately, one of the medics, uh, a little bit later, you know, seconds later, saw my eyes start to flutter, which meant my heart was still beating. So he alerted the rest of the team. And two of the medics on board then performed this procedure, which you mentioned, which involved them taking some drills and drilling in one from the front, one from the back into my hip bone, right around all my vital organs, and then inserting an intravenous line straight into my bone to give me fluids. And they said within about three minutes, I was, I, I basically returned from the dead and was, was fully conscious again. Good Lord. Yeah. Mark, do you know if you was the first combat casualty to, to get that trade on them? I was, yeah. They'd only actually... It had only been cleared for use three days before my incident. <laughs> Jesus. Imagine if somebody hadn't seen your eyes fluttering, you know, and, and paying that close attention. They wouldn't be talking to you today. Yeah, I know. And I can't imagine, you know, all the training these guys do is, is in a sterile environment where it's, you know, relatively calm. And now they're in the back of a Chinook that's banking left to right. It's full of sand. They're trying to avoid incoming fire. Everyone's panicking. You know, I... God knows how they did it, and you know, drilling into my body by my vital organs in that situation as well was extremely risky, but they pulled it off. That's just an amazing story. I mean, and to think that uh, that procedure was so new, I think you know, for all the stuff that you've gone through, and uh, you know, you wake up in Selly Oak Hospital in Birmingham, and then. That's that's kind of where the mindset that you had and, and the uh, resilience or the relentless effort that you had prior to joining the, Mar- the Marines or while you were in the Royal Marines kind of started kicking in because, I mean, it was that attitude and approach that helped you get through it. It, it was, yeah. You know, I think there was a certain element of, of luck involved as well because I think when you wake up in that situation, there's there's only two ways you can go, and that is you know, down into a depressive state, you know, why me, my life sucks, why has this happened, or it's happened, there's nothing I can do about it, it's going to be difficult, but let's figure it out, let's move forward, and, you know, I had a little bit of luck, I think, and that was, that was my mindset, was, you know, there's nothing I can do about it, they ain't growing back, I'm still here, let's figure this way, this thing out and move forward. So you lost both legs above the knee and my right arm above the elbow. And thinking about that situation and how you've been, the attitude that you have and the approach to, that you have to life, I mean, it's just kind of a, a testament to you and, and what you've gone through. And I love one of the shirts that you actually had on your Instagram page that says, hustle, hit, never quit. I think it's spot on for you because, I mean, you know, you, you didn't let anything let you down and you didn't look at life with a, whoa, me, woe is me and... You know, like you said, go into a deep depression, which could be very easy to do. And instead, what you did is you you embrace life and uh, you're out living it now. Yeah, I mean, I, I've always 
embraced life. You know, I've always wanted to challenge myself and get as much as I can from it. But as, as corny as it sounds, when when you've died, um, you have a different perspective of how short it actually is and how fast things can change. Now, some of my friends, Mark, have got, have gone through that same epiphany, and and they've hit depression states later. Did did you maintain your positive mindset throughout, or did you did you kind of roller coaster back and forth a little bit? Ninety percent, you know, positive. Um, you know, I just I just kept myself so busy. Yeah. You know, I, I discovered the power of setting goals very early on, um, and it it almost became an addiction of just setting myself a goal to move myself forward and then just doing whatever the hell it took to make sure that I that I achieved it. And I never really gave myself enough time to sit down and think about my situation to then go down that kind of route. I just kept on, you know, marching forward at a pace um, and keeping myself busy. How old was your daughter at this time? She was just under three years old. Did you discover at any time or have they done any tests to see was there any type of traumatic brain injury or anything that was also suffered as part of the uh, concussion? No. I mean, I think I was pretty nutty beforehand, if I'm honest. Um, (laughs) But no, it's it's bizarre. Like, my hearing is is great. Um, You know, I'm very lucky in the fact that what you see is what you get. You know, if you want to get a little bit personal for any men listening you know <laughs> the, the twig and giggle berries are all good um i've had two extra kids the the regular way since i was injured so i was very lucky in that respect no internal injuries so i have friends who had shrapnel tear up their intestines and you know all their internal organs all mine are perfectly intact and perfectly healthy you know with me it's what you see is what you get um, and I'm very lucky. Mark, you've used that word a couple of times now, luck, and you know, you, you've obviously had a massive piece of shit luck on the day with where you put your knee, you know. But there there was massive bits of good luck as well, you know, with like you said, the, the three days before uh the new procedure got cleared, um the the medic on the Chinook noticing that your eyes were uh, were moving and things and uh, has, has any of that helped with your positive outlook on things and kind of focusing on the good luck that you had as opposed to the bad piece? That, that's pretty much all I do is is focus on, you know, as much of the good of my situation as I can. You know, there, there's everything from, you know, I, I believe a certain amount of fate, you know, that I think it was always going to happen to me. But on the other side of it, I, I survived for a reason. All those little bits of luck happened for a reason. I had the right people around me at the right time for a reason. And when you actually sit down and think about it, you know, I'm very lucky, and guys in my situation are very lucky to have been injured in the day and age that we were in with, you know, 100,000 pound sets of prosthetic legs and Amazon Alexa down in my front room so I don't even have to get my ass off the chair to go and turn my lights <laughs> up in my house. Being, being disabled in this day and age is the best time to be disabled because everything's just so easy now. You know, everything's, you know, you can run a business from your mobile phone. Right. There's no excuse why I can't earn a living to provide for my family. I've got, you know, 100 grand of a prosthetic legs. It just took a, a lot of hard work to be able to master them but now I can walk around and travel the world independently on my own. I haven't used a wheelchair since the 9th of June 2009. I actually just, <laughs> this morning, 
It's been sat in my garage for years, unused, and this morning I actually got rid of it. It got taken away on a, on a skip truck and thrown into a scrap heap somewhere. So, you know, 20 years ago, I probably would have died. And if I didn't die, I'd be in some rickety old wheelchair with no prosthetics, you know, with people caring for me, pushing me around everywhere, doing things for me, and my life would just be miserable. So I, I have an off-the-wall question. Doing the math, and your daughter was three at the time, so 10 years ago, and my sons, I have a 14-year-old and a 10-year-old. And a um, they're always, you know, my friends are always telling me that my parenting style is based off of my military, you know, and deployment experiences, et cetera. So what type of, of reaction is your – how many eye rolls do you get on a normal day when your 13-year-old daughter talks about her bad day? Do you do, you do the whole, like <laughs> – <laughs> The laugh. <laughs> You know, I, I I try not to. Um, I, I don't want to be that annoying. Well, there's got to be a part of you in there, right? Like, that's not even near a bad day. Come on. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll think it, but I won't articulate it. Um, or I'll try not to as, as much as possible. Because I don't want to be that guy where she thinks every time she complains, I'm going to... It's what we call it in the Royal Marines, black hatting. You know, if you've yeah. been to Tenerife, I've been to Eleven Reef. You know, if you've ran 20 miles, I've ran 21 miles. I, I, oh, yeah. You know, I don't, I don't want to do that to her, especially at her age. But um, I'll certainly do it to grown-ups. No, it's like the Big Lebowski, right? Like tying everything back to Vietnam and, and all the experiences in the movie. Um, no, but that's interesting. I just had to ask because I always ask my friends, you know, give me the honest, give me the honest uh, expression here. Because if I asked your son or daughter, what would they say? You know, like I can't tell my dad anything. And the flip side of this question would be, man, I wouldn't want to be the kid dating your daughter in a couple of years when they come to the house because that would be <laughs> that would be a hard pickup, man, for sure. Uh-huh. Tell us about some of the uh, the programs that you have going on right now for the Invictus Games in preparation for that. What are, what are some of the routines? Take us through the typical day. And have you met Prince Harry yet? That's what everybody wants to know. Oh, loads of times. Loads of times. He's a is good he a guy. good dude or is he a douche? All right, good. That's what I wanted to hear. No, he's awesome. He's awesome. Yeah. Very genuine. All right, good. Um, so the training, it can be relentless. Um, I don't know if you ever used a Concept 2 rower machine. I had never used one until last year, and it is disgusting. <laughs> yeah. um, everything from my ears down to the ends of my legs hurts when I get off of a rowing machine. Uh, swimming was interesting. Trying to swim in a straight line instead of a circle with one arm took a little bit of time. <laughs> and then, um, you know, I'm not cycling this year. I did, I did hand biking last year, but this year I'm going for shot put and discus. And just like the other sports last year, I've never thrown a shot put in my life. I've never thrown a discus. Next weekend's my first training camp. So I've got a lot of technique to try and understand and learn and then start the, the training from there. But, you know, what did I did you last your dominant year, hand or your, your non-dominant hand? Sorry. I, I lost my dominant hand. Yeah, I was right-handed. Good Lord. Yeah. So that, that was a little bit difficult to get used to as well. But, um, you know, we, we have training camps, we have programs, but a lot for a lot of it, because I only have one hand, uh, one arm, you know, the, the training, it's not specifically tailored to me, and a lot of it I can't do, so I have to customize what I do. So last year I basically went online, I looked up all the results for the classifications uh, for the sports that I was doing, so my classification in 
swimming, rowing and hand cycling, found out what the times were for the gold medals and literally just just kicked my own ass to try and beat those times in every discipline. Oh, of course you did. And that, yeah, and then that's how I, that's how I did it. I just wanted to, I thought, well, if the guys that won gold last year turn up this year, I need to be able to beat them. Um, so I just kind of tailored it and just did whatever whatever I could, just thrash myself with the cardio, strength and conditioning, change my diet a little bit. Um, this year I'm going to focus a lot on, or a little bit more recovery, because I realise how important that is now. Um, for your, your performance after, you know, you can't just keep thrashing yourself and going and going and going. You've got to recover and uh, get your strength back. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change it a little bit this year. Um but it is just months and months and months of relentless training, five, six times a week. Now you're now a role model for other amputees and an ambassador for the Royal Marines Association, but you also do a lot of charitable work for fundraisers, and including doing some, I guess, some pretty crazy stunts and stuff out there. You know, I, I don't know if I made this, this quote up. I like to think that I did. Um, <laughs> but I was, I was doing something the other day, and it just, it just fell out my mouth. I said, from adversity comes opportunity. And, you know, my situation brings a lot of opportunity with it. And one of the opportunities is um, contribution and giving back, you know, and saying thank you to those charities and organizations that helped me and my family when we first started going through this. And, you know, a lot of my, my friends who are serving or retired military, they love jumping out of planes. They love bungee jumping off of bridges. They love climbing mountains. You know, and we can still do all that stuff, and, and I have done that stuff. It's just slower, and you have to be a little bit more creative with how you do it. So I, I used some of those things in the past to raise money uh, for charity. I, again, with the, the sports stuff, the cycling, the running, that kind of stuff, I used it to personally challenge myself, you know, doing some runs and some hand cycles, but at the same time, I thought, well, it's a good opportunity to push myself physically and mentally and raise money and give back to those charities again. So it's kind of, on one hand, it's selfish because you, I'm trying to push myself and test myself. But on the other hand, you know, it's a way to give back at the same time. Yeah, it's a yeah. greater good for sure. <clears throat> Uh -huh. yep. Yeah, it's that sense of service. I think we've talked about it on many other episodes about how those of us who are veterans start thinking more about service in some way. And usually it ends up tying back to helping others, uh, whether it's veterans or those who might have similar mindsets or like-minded individuals. And in your case, I think you're doing it in both ways. You're, you're serving as an ambassador to those uh, military people who are coming back that might be very similar to yourself or to even civilians who might be struggling through some of the same challenges. And so that's, it's pretty amazing. Thank you. It comes back again for me to, to Mark's mindset, you know, and it's, it's freaking phenomenal. If we're going to be honest about it, if, if you follow him on any kind of social media, he's, he's out there every morning, five thirty, banging on the door of the gym, I think was one of the posts he put uh, last week, waiting for the gym to open. <laughs> And, and, you know, you, you said there, Mark, out of adversity comes opportunity. But that opportunity is, is perceived by the individual, whether you take it as a, a positive and use it as an opportunity to do something else or uh, other lesser people um, may just fallen into the, the black hole, you know. And, and from, from what I've been following you, Mark, for 
a couple of years before we started talking on Twitter uh, recently. You, you don't see any darkness at all. Everything is, is positive for you, and you're a shining example out there on social media of, of positive attitude, and, and you certainly put people like me to shame, you know. I mean, you, you, you're finding ways to do things. Like you just said about the, uh, the Invictus Games, you went out and Googled everybody's times and just thrashed yourself on whatever the sport was just to, to beat those times. And you just seem to not have the word can't in your dictionary, really. You know, it's about perspective. You know, a lot of people might look at me and think, oh, his situation's, you know, really difficult and he, you know, poor man and all this stuff. But you read a couple books, you know, like Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, and you read about what he went through, you know, in, in concentration camps, now he was tortured and put on the brink of death and then brought back to life again and just, you know, messed around for years. And, you know, I've, you see other things about people that go through, in my opinion, stuff that's a lot worse than, than what I've been through. Children that go through hell in different countries. And you just realise, actually, it's not that bad. I live in in a great country. I've got great support. I'm healthy. I'm not really struggling for anything. The support's there if you if you need it, if you look hard enough for it. You know, and it just it just puts things into perspective. That's what I can't stand. You know, one of my one of my pet hates is able-bodied, healthy people that just abuse that privilege and and whine and complain all the time. And I'm like, well, what are, you, what are you complaining about? You've got two arms, two legs, a heart, lungs, a brain. You know, you can pretty much do whatever you want. If, if Richard Branson can be a billionaire, so can you. You're both born healthy. You both have the same resources. You know, it's just that he was more motivated than you were. He had a vision and he went out and executed on it. And you just complain about stuff. He took the opportunities, you know, like like you did, you, you've got to take those opportunities and, and use them for a positive as opposed to a negative, I guess. Yeah, of course, of course you have. You know, I've, I've got a family to support. Yeah. Now, I'm not going to let my kids see me, you know, throw the towel in and go, okay, this has happened, this is my excuse, I'm just going to complain about it and use it for the rest of my life. You know, I want them to see the other side of it where they see me in this situation and think, well, my dad didn't make excuses. He still provided for us. He still was out there working. He stayed fit. He did what he wanted to do. Oh, you're definitely definitely an inspiration, man. I'm not only following you on social media now, but I'm going to have my kids follow you as well. So thank you. No problem. Mark, what is the one message that you want our listeners to kind of take away from some of the things that you've been through? And, you know, if you if you had to leave them with one nugget, what would it be? You know what? It, everybody goes through adversity in their life. Everybody faces challenges. You know, what could be minor to one person could be massive to another person, but you know it, it's a fact that we all go through it. My main advice is, you know, whatever it is you're facing, as difficult as it as it can be at that time, you know, you have to remain positive and keep a positive mindset. You know, it wasn't easy for me to do that in this situation, but I had to fight, you know, every day mentally to stay positive and focus on the good in my life. And then you need to set yourself some goals because you need a focus and a drive and a direction to stop you slumping into depressions or thinking negatively, you know, think positive to work towards. And, you know, the biggest thing, once you've done that, you've got the positive mindset, you set the goals. The thing where I see a lot of people fall down is in taking action. 
they, they do the first two and then they just don't take the action to go out and achieve those goals. That's where it is. It's all about just no excuses. Don't talk yourself out of it. Just do whatever it takes to go out there and achieve those goals. And you just got to keep on moving forward. It's awesome. Scott mentioned about your social media. Tell some of the ways that people can find out more about you or follow you on social media, because I'm sure after they listen to this episode, they're going to want to know, okay, how can I follow Mark? What are the best ways they can do that? So I, I'm everywhere. Um, I'm on you know, Facebook. All, all my handles are the same. They're at Mark Ormrod. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I, I'm just starting to put a bit more effort into YouTube now. I am just about to, uh, within the next, three or four weeks launch a new social media platform called Patreon. Uh, Patreon, I'm not sure how it's pronounced. It's, it's a new concept, um, kind of like crowdfunding, which enables creative people to be creative but generate income from it. Um, so it's another way I'm looking at using, like I said earlier, the, the great world we live in today to be able to provide for my family. And uh, on the website, www.markhomeworld.com. Mark, it was a pleasure, man. Appreciate you joining us and uh, wish you nothing but the best in the games that are coming up. We'll look forward to seeing you out there kicking some butt. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to our podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and at Facebook by searching at Mentors, the number four M-I-L, and please subscribe to our podcast. It's free and it ensures you're the first to hear our latest podcast show. We have several options depending upon your device. And we're at iTunes, SoundCloud, at Stitcher, and at TuneIn Radio. Hey everyone, Robert here. I love supporting veteran-owned companies, and Mentors for Military recently partnered with Skeleton Optics to offer a 10% discount to our listeners. That's right, 10%. These aren't your regular run-of-the-mill sunglasses, by the way. The frames are handcrafted in Italy with Zeiss Vision lenses. Use the code MentorsForMail or Mentors the number four MIL at SkeletonOptics.com and you'll receive your 10% discount automatically at checkout. Hurry up and get on over there to support a veteran-owned company.